Welcome to the Impact Church Podcast, and thank you so much for joining us as we seek to establish Christ followers who live in obedience to God's Word and make an impact in their community and the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, Pastor Brad continues in his sermon series on the book of Revelation as he speaks about God's command to Christians to go and make disciples. Are you ready to make an impact for Christ? The time is now. Welcome to Impact Church this morning. How are you doing? Good. Y'all excited to be here? Hey, happy birthday, right? As a body of Christ, uh, turning six years old today as a church, a great Sunday to, to be here because the Lord has a message for us as we celebrate all of who he is, all of what he's done, all of what he's doing, and all of what we trust and know he will do in the days, months, and years to come. As you know, if you're turning six, we're getting ready to start year seven, right? So starting into our seventh year, we're trusting and knowing that we know what the number seven is in the Bible. It's, it's, the, year of, it's the number of perfection, the number of completion, of fullness. So we're praying that God would move us into, through all the struggles, all the trials, all the, the, the challenges that he has helped us overcome in the first six years, especially this past year. That the year of strain, if it was in year six, that this would be the year of gain. For, for his glory. So we're praying over that. We're going to talk a lot about that today because we're going to kind of stay in Revelation, but we're going to kind of jump out a minute and we're going to talk about what the video alluded to, and that is our, uh, our desire and our even command from our Lord, from Jesus and the Great Commission to go and reach people, to make disciples. And what is that? What does that look like? How, how do we carry ourselves in that regard? Of course, last week we just talked about the rapture and uh, had a, a very detailed uh, explanation into all the facets of the rapture and, uh, and, and, and what that looks like biblically. And I hope you really gain some concrete understanding in that passage and in that message. So if you missed it, go back and listen to that, okay, because it's important. But ultimately, regardless of, regardless of where your view is in eschatology on the rapture, we should agree on um, certain things. One is Jesus is coming again. Second, there will be a rapture, all right? And also that biblically, we can see and know and understand that the time is near. Because when you look at passages of 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 4, you put that with the Olivet Discourse that Jesus gave in Matthew 24 and 25, along with other passages in Scripture, we can definitively say that the signs of the time are around, Okay. So therefore, we need to be looking up and ready. Part of that being ready is not just getting us ready, but you got to get you ready before you can do what? Go help other people get ready. And that's what God has given the command to do for all of us and given us a heart as a church to emphatically do. And that's reach the lost and make disciples. I'm going to start us off like I, I do frequently uh, with an, an imagery. And, uh, of course, it's going to go back to football again, all right? So we're going to talk about football. We know we've got the playoffs going on today. A couple of different teams going to be playing. And if you watch any of those games or if you watch even college football or whatever, you know at the commencement of a game that, two, of course, two different teams take the field, right? They show up from different cities. They show up wearing 
different uniforms. They show up following a different playbook that they play by. And they will be in conflict for the duration of that game, trying to prove who's better, trying to establish who will win. But if you watch a game or any other sport for that matter, along with the two teams on the field or on the court, there's a third team that takes the field. And that's the team of officials. You see, these officials individually, at some point in their life, they may have even identified with one of the two teams on the field. They may have been their preference. They may have been their nemesis. Who knows? They may have identified in some way with the teams in conflict. But they have chosen to come under a new identity, that they are separate from those on the field. That means they are set apart from the two teams. You see, because now they belong to a a higher order. Call it the NFL, right? So they are subject to a higher authority that's over the whole game. And they're set apart in how they look. They're set apart in how they act. They're set apart in how they carry themselves on the field because they've been trained in the knowledge of this game through that greater authority by a book, a rule book, if you will, in this case. But this book governs every decision they will make. It governs their thoughts, their opinions. It governs their previous preferences. And everything they do and every decision they make must be made subject to the governed authority and that book. Somebody getting a message already? Sometimes they'll be booed. Sometimes they'll be cheered. But popularity is not their mission. Obedience and surrender to the governing authority in the book amidst the chaos and the conflict on the field is what matters most to them as they look to bring order to what's going on. Guys, today... We're in the game of life, but it's not a game. The world we live in is filled with conflict and chaos and everybody trying to prove who's better, who's right. And there's nothing but chaos going on. And so many times, many people that are in this conflict have lost sight of the rule book. And they don't even care what the rule book says because they want to get theirs while they're here. They want to prove their dominance over the ones they're in conflict with. And unfortunately, in the midst of this uh, conflict in our world, many of God's officiating crew, those that call themselves a follower of Christ, have joined in on the conflict. In fact, they're on the field not representing the higher authority or the book. That should be governing all their thoughts, decisions. That should overrule their previous thoughts, preferences, and ideas. Unfortunately, many of the officials on the field of life don't know the rule book for themselves. So how could they rightly 
help bring order to the conflict in the world. Many have decided that they're going to neglect their training if they have been trained, and they're going to side with one of the teams on the field. And in doing so, not only do they join the conflict, but they create more conflict, confusion, and disorder. Far too many people in the church fail to realize that God has called us Those of us who call ourselves a Christian, those of us who claim to be a follower of Christ, he has called us to be set apart. He has called us not to join the sides of the conflict of the world and the clash, but to be different and to be ruled by the governing authority of himself and the governing authority of his word, the playbook, by which now we can bring peace, comfort, Order, love, hope to a world that desperately needs it. God's called his disciples not only to be set apart, but to be salt and to be light in a hurting and dark world. Then he's called his disciples to do something monumental. That's make more disciples. You see, because when the game's on the line, Who does the coach put on the field in the fourth quarter when the away team is losing? Who does the coach have on the field? It's the playmakers. Those he trusts and know are going to make a play. That they're going to stand differently in the midst of the chaos and the pressure. God's looking for playmakers. Disciples. And he's asking us to get our hearts and our lives right with him first. And then as such, to shine his light to a a hurting world, to reach more and to make disciples, other impact players on the field, to do just that, to make an impact for Christ in a world that desperately needs it. That's the fourth quarter comeback we're going to talk about today. Let me pray for us before we dive in. Dear Lord, we love you. We praise you. Lord, we lift you up. We magnify you. Father, you are holy. You are God. You are worthy of our praise. Lord, not just with our lips, Father, but far more importantly, with our hearts and with our lives. Lord, help us say yes to you. Father, we praise you for everything you've done through this church, your church, in the years and when circumstances had mounted against what you wanted to do, and we've seen you overcome, we've seen you make a way. And Lord, we trust to know that the obstacles that present itself today and in the future, that you will do the same because you are God. And Lord, help us to trust to know that no matter what the circumstances look like around us, that you are faithful. And, Lord, as we follow that as a church, Lord, let that be a testimony to who you are to every person so that they can now trust you the same for the chaos in their own life, first the obstacles that they face, to trust and know that you are God, that you are faithful, and even in the midst of circumstances that don't look good, that don't go well, that don't go as we planned, Father, that you are still God, that you are in control. And that, Lord, although the promise was not for it to be easy, Lord, you promised that we would get to the other side through your son. 
So I pray that we would learn from you today, Lord, how to be a disciple, an authentic follower of Jesus. And Lord, that we would say yes to you as you look to sanctify us and set us apart. And Lord, that we in turn would be a light in the darkness that shines for you, that other people would come to you in faith and hear your word and fall under the authority of the Holy Spirit in their life as well. Lord, that's why we exist. Pray that you would get all the praise and glory today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to turn to a passage in Revelation that kind of points to the ultimate fourth quarter comeback, if you will. Turn with me to the book of Revelation in chapter 12. And we're just going to pick this passage out, and we'll further exegete this whole uh, chapter later as we go through Revelation. But I wanted to point this out for the message today as we celebrate six years and looking forward to what God has for Impact Church. And as we look, more importantly, at what it looks like to be a disciple and make disciples. Chapter 12, we're going to read verses 7 through 11. 7 through 11. And to set the picture here, this is talking about a woman, a male child, and a dragon. The woman, of course, is not Mary, all right? One would read this and think it would be Mary because she gives birth to a male child who is Christ, of course, right? But this is not the woman Mary. This is Israel, representation of Israel in this text, okay? So Christ comes out of Israel. That's why in John, he said, salvation comes from the Jews, all right? So we're getting that context and where we're at. So we're talking about Israel that's going to be persecuted by the dragon, okay, which is Satan, the enemy, the great deceiver, and the accuser of the brethren. He's going to attack and persecute God's people. But let's read this because there's inside of this, because we know as of now, as a whole, that Israel as a nation, Jews as a whole, although there are some individual differences, but as a whole, they don't recognize Christ as the Messiah right now. That will come in the end times, in Revelation, as they see, okay, Christ defeat their enemies, the king of the north, king of the south, and everybody that comes against them, and they don't even have to lift a sword. And they're defeated, and they turn to God, all right? So, How did they overcome? How did they gain victory? What does this fourth quarter comeback look like? Let's read verses 7 through 11. It says, And war broke out in heaven. Boy, that'll twist your theology, won't it? (laughs) Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan, in case there was any question about who that dragon was, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. You ready for the victory? And they overcame. Somebody say overcame. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. You ready for this part? Want to see what a disciple looks like? They did not love their lives to the death. 
That's a comeback. From somebody who doesn't even believe or acknowledge now to at the end turns. And we'll go through eventually as we get there on, on who is, is able to come to Christ during the tribulation and all that. We'll look at that. But for the reference of the text here, we know that victory is had over an enemy, over flesh, and over the things of this world by a group of people who have committed themselves to Christ have fallen under the authority of Christ, covered in the blood, the blood of the Lamb that's covered them, and then by the word of their testimony, that they have stood for Jesus in a world that's going in the opposite direction. In the midst of the conflict, they have stood for a higher authority. They have stood for a rule book that governs them differently so that people would see something different in them, and they didn't even love their lives so much as to die for the cause of Christ. So how do we overcome the enemy today, ourselves? Same way, through the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And by a commitment to Christ with his power and strength in us, where we have a resolve in us, where we don't even love our lives, the things of this world, to the point where we would rather save our life, because the Bible says when that happens, we'll lose it. But if we lose our life for his sake, we'll find it. Because we're governed by a higher authority and we're committed to his word. There's the difference. So, what does this look like? Was this, was this type of, of stance recommended in scripture? How about from the, the words of Jesus? Did, what does the disciple look like? Is there even a, an expectation to make more disciples? Is everybody to be a disciple? Let's look at that. Let's go to Matthew chapter 28 and hear the words of the Great Commission from Jesus himself. And let's look what it might start to look like to have a life committed to stand no matter what. Not looking for popularity in the world, but expecting victory in Christ no matter the circumstances. Matthew chapter 28. Let's go ahead and read. We're going to read verses 16 through 20. We're going to talk about this passage because this will be most of our teaching passage today for this message. Chapter 28, verse 16 through 20. The Great Commission. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So here we are in this context with Jesus speaking to his disciples. And we know that this is after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, before he has ascended to heaven. And the Bible says right here that basically he, he calls a meeting. Did you see that? It says they went to, into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. So he called this meeting. And something very interesting, we see the 11. I thought there were 12. <laughs> was 
But one was a false disciple. One couldn't commit and entrust himself to Christ. He walked with Jesus, but couldn't commit to Jesus. Maybe that's familiar to you. Have you attempted to walk with Jesus, but not committed to Jesus? Judas was absent here in the 11 authentic real disciples remained, and they went to this meeting at this mountain with Jesus. The Bible says that when they saw him, they worshipped him. That's important. Because we know at the end, he's even going to say something very particular that somebody, yes, the context here, he's talking with his disciples. He's on a meeting on the mountain. But he says, lo, I'm with you to the very end of the age. What does that already allude to? Were his disciples, were those 11 men, did Jesus think they were going to be alive all the way to the end of the age? No. So he's talking to his disciples, but then he's also talking to who? The church, his other disciples. Until what? Until the end of the age. So this message is for you and me just like it was for them. There's your application in Christ. And he defines these followers, these disciples, if you will, by saying that they are taught something. That they are taught to follow, to walk in obedience to the governing authority of Christ and his word. All that I've commanded you. Did you catch that? So these aren't PRN Christians. Just when it's convenient. These aren't fair weather followers of Jesus. Where it's comfortable on Sunday because I'm, in, I'm amongst the people who cheer the same. But then on Monday through Saturday, I'm going to tuck that in my pocket. I'm going to put Jesus on the shelf. I'm going to live my life as I want. And then just come back when it's convenient, when I can make it on a Sunday. You see, these aren't PRN, casual Christians. These are full-time followers of Jesus. They're committed to something. The Bible says when they saw him, they worshiped. Proof of the deity of Jesus, because if, if Jesus wasn't God, he would have immediately done what? Say, hey, don't worship me. Worship the Father. But he didn't, because he's God. And it was their recognition of who he is, that he is God. And it was their recognition of this, that they could trust him to do what he said he was going to do, that he is worthy, no matter the circumstances or the outcome that they face. I want you to think about that. Because... If you know the rest of the story around the gospel, the, the disciples didn't, they weren't ready to, to charge hell with a water pistol just yet. The Bible even alludes to that to some extent because some doubted. And we know that after the resurrection, that, that in other passages of the gospel, that they were locked in a room, scared in fear. And Jesus had to come back and, and present himself to them. And even so much so that Thomas, when he missed the original um, uh, meeting with Christ, Christ had to come back and show him the nail-scarred hands because he said, I won't believe till I touch it. So they weren't ready to charge yet until they had that experience with the resurrected Messiah that changed them. Interesting that it says some doubted here even though they worshipped. And I think that's important because even inside their questions, even inside their doubt, they still came to the Lord, right? They were in his presence. Some doubt today, they doubt that God's real. They doubt that his word's real. Some doubt that God can be trusted. Some question God and say, Lord, with all this chaos and stuff going on in the world, how could there truly be a God 
that, is, that loves and is in control. Is he really in control? You see, some doubt and have questions today. The disciples may have doubted and had questions. Maybe they couldn't believe what they were seeing. Maybe they were thinking to themselves, is this real? Do I have to wake myself up? I just saw him die on the cross. I saw them. I know they placed him in a tomb, but here he is. You see, what's important in application for us is even though they had their doubts, even though they had their questions, they did not let their doubt or their questions run them away from the Savior. How many, I wonder if there's somebody in here, you still have some doubts, you still have some questions. And I commend you because you're in the right place, because you're seeking and you're wanting to know more. And and I would encourage you to not let your doubt or your questions run you away from the truth, but to ask questions, to to fall under the authority of his word, to, to read his word and to understand it for yourself and let the Holy Spirit speak to you and guide you. And don't let it push you away. And then in verse 18, here in that passage of the Great Commission, Jesus comes out. With the, the showstopper statement, the game changer statement, if you will, because he says something very specific. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Oh, my goodness. I don't know if you know this or not, but this, uh, the Greek word for all there, you know what it means? It means all. <laughs> there you go. All means all, and that's all all means, all day, all right? It's all. All authority has been given to me where? Heaven and earth. He's God. He's God in the flesh, and he is in control of everything. I think that's why it's so hard for some people to grasp how we alluded to it when we started our opening of the scrolls, how, how the Lamb, Jesus himself, was the one who took the scroll and would open the seals that would unleash the wrath of God against all evil and sin on the world. Because he's in control. He's a God of love, mercy, and grace. Praise God for that, but he's also a God of justice. And he's a God of wrath against sin and evil. He has to be because he's holy. So we see this distinction, this statement that Christ makes where all authority has been given to me. So he is what? He's in charge. And let me ask you this. If he's in charge of all of heaven and he's in charge of all of earth, do you think that as we come to him that he should be in charge of all of us? Is he? Is he? Have you surrendered authority of your life to the lordship of Jesus? Look, that doesn't happen immediately to the point where what it's going to look like years from now as you walk with Christ. But there's a progressive change in you through the spirit that's God-given, a heart of repentance, where he leads you to that. This word authority here is the word exousia in the Greek. We're going to talk about that a little bit. A word that's used for authority more frequently probably in the New Testament is the word dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite. That means strength, power, ability. All right? So we've got this, this physical strength, physical power that's looking like authority. But exousia is different. Exousia is a legitimate right to exercise power. It's the power of rule or of government that would have. If you look at the definition of this, is the power of him 
whose will and commands must be submitted to by others and obeyed. I'm going to read that again. It's the power of him whose will and commands must be submitted to by others and obeyed. That's exousia. Great example as we, we, we look at our football example again with the teams versus the referees. So we know the teams, the football players on the field, they have dunamis, right? They have strength. They have power. They have ability. They've been training. They've been in the weight room. They're like superhuman physicality specimens, right? And then you have the other team on the field, the referees. And they may not be in quite the shape that the other guy's in. They may be a little shorter. They may be a little rounder. You know what I'm saying? They may be a little slower. So they don't have the dunamis that the players have. But they have the exousia. They have the total final authority to stay over the field. See that? That's what Christ is saying here. That he has all authority over everything. Meaning he calls the shots. He wants to call the shots. Did you know this? For your family. Do you let him? He wants to call the shots in your marriage. Do you let him? He wants to call the shots in your business. He wants to call the shots in your finances. Not you. He wants to call the shots in your relationships, in your decisions. He wants to call the shots for your life. Why? Because he's a tyrant, bully God? No, because he's a loving Heavenly Father. And he has the knowledge of the future and what's best for you and the blueprints of your life in his hand. Why wouldn't we entrust our life to somebody who has our best interest in mind? That's why it's not rules and do's and don'ts when you come to Christ. It's a relationship, and it's out of that relationship that we want to sacrifice and lay down our life for a loving Heavenly Father who knows what's best for us. He does. He knows what's best for you. The world and the enemy are coming against you and coming against God's church and coming against people who are lost and trying to deceive them and make them think that, no, the world has better for you, that you have better ideas for yourself than God does. God, if you follow God, you're going to miss out on some great times. You're going to miss out on some cool stuff in life. You don't want to do that yet, college kid. You want to live it up, goes the lie from the enemy. When the whole time Jesus is right here saying, if you would just follow me and and come to me, that I will give you life and I will give it to you to the full. Because if you want to try to save your own life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you're going to find it. Why would we run from that promise? Here's the truth. Someone can have exousia. They can have authority, but you can still rebel against it. Think about the players on the field. The referees have exousia, and they know it, and they know they can throw the flag. They know that, that, that they could, could throw discipline their way. But do some still rebel and do it anyway? How about us as followers of Christ? What are we looking at as our authority? Are we following Christ as best we can, knowing that our flesh is going to fail? But is our heart attitude, Lord, help me, because my heart and my soul is willing, but my flesh is weak. Is that your heart attitude? Or are you making excuses for your flesh and giving into it? On the football field, if they continue to rebel, then discipline comes their way by a flag. And if they continue to do certain things certain ways, they may even get thrown out of the game. 
in the game of life if we continue to rebel against Christ and his word and his authority. Bad things can happen. The flags, if you will, can fall on our field of life and set us back because there's consequences for our sin. And if we continue in a lifelong heart attitude of rebellion against God and his word and his authority over our lives, then we're in danger of being thrown out of the game for eternity. Some reject his authority and his word today and try to disregard his command that's very plain and simple all through Scripture to deny yourself and follow him. And that's the start. That's that start heart attitude that God creates in us. To God, I admit that I, that's where, that we're repentance. It's a, it's a change of mind. I change my mind about who you are, about what, what your word says about, about my sin, and I want to follow you and honor you in all I do. Help me, Lord. This passage here of the Great Commission oftentimes gets watered down because it says make disciples. It doesn't say just make converts. It doesn't say just make church members and fill pews and entertain them so they stay and tickle their ears so they come back. It's not what it says. It says make disciples. And we talked about and looked at what that discipleship looked like. Jesus even said himself, what does that disciple look like? Baptize, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, identification of the, the new life that Christ has done in you, that the outward expression of that, to be set apart, to be different. And then teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That's not popular, but that's what that progressive look of a disciple is. Continuously, albeit slow, some are a little more hard-headed than others, but following Jesus, none the same. Saying yes to him. So what is a disciple? If you look at the definition of a disciple, a disciple is a follower of any teacher or of any certain thought. It's one who gives their loyalty and support to another. So if you look in Webster's. So a true disciple is not just a student or a learner. You see that word loyalty? He's a follower. He has a new identity of the one he follows. So we can put this all together scripturally. So a disciple is a person who progressively, that's the key word, progressively. All right? Because you're not immediately going to be where you should be. Right? It's going to be a start. But it's progressive. So a disciple is a person who progressively, that's the key word, is learning to live all of life under the authority and lordship of Jesus and his word. That's it. That's a disciple. They're not lukewarm. They're not riding the fence like we talked about in the church of Laodicea. They're not fair-weather Christians. They're not just the ones that keep parts of the Bible they like and make them feel good while ignoring, omitting, and rejecting the parts that they don't like. They take all of the authority of the word and they live by it. Which begs the question, does Jesus have the authority in your life through his word and through his spirit to overrule you? And your thoughts, and your premonitions, and your previous experiences, just like we talked about the referees on that field. Thought about what could I give you quickly that looked like this, the steps of becoming a disciple. And I put it in three T's. And the first one is to turn around. 
That's to deny yourself, to identify with Christ, that, that I stand here and, and this is all I have to simply do as the Spirit prompts me and calls me because no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit calls them. That I just say yes to Jesus. That means I just turn around and be like, here I am, Lord. It doesn't mean that, that, that I have to do anything else, that I am silly here and I surrender and I turn my life, the authority of my life over to you and I want to live for you. Help me, Lord, because my flesh is weak. Like we talked about my heart and my soul is willing, but my flesh is weak, Lord, help me. So inside of that turnaround is the first step. And that's the Matthew 16, 24 through 26 passage that we've repeated so many times. And that's the heart of repentance that starts, that's given by the Spirit. The second part after the turnaround is the, trans, is the transformation. It's the transformation. And that's done through the power of the Spirit of God in you as you say yes to Jesus. The same power of the Spirit of God that justifies is the same power of the Spirit that will sanctify you. Too many people in this world say, Lord, I know you got the power to justify me. I trust in that. I trust in your finished work on the cross, which you should. And I trust that I'm saved as I identify with you. I trust in that. But I don't trust you to sanctify me. You see, I'm going to leave that power for myself and how much I do and how much I don't where we don't fully entrust and commit our lives to him. And so many of us get stuck, as Paul alluded to so many times in Scripture. You're still stuck on some milk, man. You need something different. You need to go. You need to let God do what he wants to do completely and fully in your life so that you can be a playmaker on the field in the fourth quarter. You see, there's, there, there's players on the field, and then there's players where? On the sideline. And then there's just fans in the stand. You see, the fans don't make a big difference necessarily until they get loud, maybe. Then there's players on the, on the sideline, and they contribute in a way because they practice, and they run reps, and they run scout team. So they're contributing in some way, but they're not making the total impact on the field that the playmakers are, the 11 that are out there at the time representing their team. Does that make sense? God wants you and I to get on the field. Nobody goes and joins a team and be like, I don't want to play coach. I just want to sit over here on the sideline. Thank you very much. No, everybody wants to do what? Play. Coach, you're not playing me now. Come on, everybody. Mom, dad, come on. Hey, coach, why aren't you playing my son? Why aren't you playing my daughter? Everybody wants to play. Do you want to play on the field of life that God's called you to? Or are you content just being on the sideline and practicing church? God wants us to be the church. He wants us to get out and make disciples, to be a disciple first. And then through us, he uses us to make disciples. Transformation through the Spirit, that's sanctification. The third one, and the sum, so you got to turn around, transform, and then testify. Testify. Be committed to the mission. And this is all continuous. Turn around is not just a one-time thing. This turning around, this heart of repentance is continuous through the rest of your life where you wake up every day and say, Jesus, it's, I need more of you and less of me. Help me to deny myself and follow you today. This transformation is never finished. From the time you start to the time you finish and take your last breath, God should be continuously changing you and molding you into the image of his son. That means you should be continuously saying yes to him and his word and his total authority. And then also, we should join the mission, the commission. And that's that word of the testimony that the Israel writes in Revelation 12. The Bible says, overcome the evil one with. Our testimony. How? By 
our testimony, how we live our life, our testimony is not just what God's done for you in the past. Your testimony is how you walk now. Your testimony will be the decisions you make tomorrow in the rest of your life. That's your testimony as to who God is in your life. And you overcome the evil with that. And then as others see Christ and you make more disciples, he's defeated more and more. But we know this, you can't defeat the demons that you enjoy playing with. Can't. If you want to overcome him, the Bible's very clear, you must submit yourself first to God. Then resist the devil. He'll flee from you. And you've overcome. But it starts with submitting to God. Then resist the devil. If you just resist the devil, resist the devil, resist the devil, and you never submit to God, you have no power. He's more powerful than you. Why? Why? Because he has an advantage here because he can appeal to our flesh, our depravity, our human nature. If we haven't submitted to God, Galatians, why Galatians says, live by the spirit so you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. But if I'm not submitted to God and I'm not living by the spirit, the only thing else I have to pull from is my flesh. And he's got this triangular attack that he comes in with first in our flesh and our depravity and then through the enticement of the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And then also, yes, through his, him and his demonic goons that come to attack and to seek to kill, steal, kill, and destroy. And he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. And he's the accuser of our brethren every single day. That's what you're up against. It's a triangular attack. And it's only defeated by submission to God and resisting him. So, disciple is the one who has this progressive change of thinking, acting, and living under the comprehensive authority of God and his word in every area of your life. Will you let God do that with you? He wants to do that with you and radically change you and give you something the world can't offer. Will you say yes to him? This call to go is a, and to make disciples is a command in the Greek. It's in the imperative. He's not requesting it. He's demanding it. It's a, it's a marching order to go and to make disciples. So what does that look like for us in this sixth year? And as we look forward to what God has, what are we doing? What are we about? Are we just here to, to have cool Sundays and, and have some great worship and some great messages and to see how many people we can bring to church? Is that what we're all about? Or are we about something different? If you know anything about our church, our mission reflects and mirrors the great commission that Jesus gave. I don't know any other mission that a church should have, by the way. Because it's the mission he gave us. So our mission as Impact Church is establishing Christ followers. That would be disciples. Establishing Christ followers who live in obedience to God's word to make an impact in our community and the world. It's the great commission in there. So what does that look like? Who are we? I mean, you know we're Impact Church, but what's in a name? Is there anything special about the name? Is there anything significant in that? Or was that just a... a just a cool name that kind of came up. There is something in the name. Because when you think of making an impact, you think of, of doing something that makes a change in the outcome. If you're an impact player on a court or on the field, what have you done? By your play, by what you've done, you have changed the outcome of the game in some fashion, right? That there's a difference at the end because of your intervention 
on the court and on the field. Being an impact player for Christ, being an impact church, being an impact disciple is letting God through you, through his power, make an impact to change the outcome of somebody. First yourself and then others around you. The name is everything. What's in the logo? Say, well, that, that's a that's kind of cool looking logo, but is that just a bunch of letters on there? Nah. Because there's a lot of identity of scripture and who we are in this. When you look at that logo, by the way, when the Lord kind of, when I was praying over, Lord, what would be the name of the church as I was, as I was running for two years from Christ and, and praying at the same time, and Lord, what would be the name? What would you call it? What, what would we have? And I woke up in the middle of the night. I don't know whether it was two or three in the morning. It was, it was really insanely uh, early and ugly. And um, the Lord gave me the name. And I got up immediately and I started to the kitchen. And, and my wife was like, where are you going? I was like, the Lord gave me the name for the church. I'm going to go draw the logo. She's like, great, tell me in the morning. So, uh, so I get up in the middle of the night and I draw this logo. Okay. What you got there? Obviously, you look at that and you see this huge eye, don't you? This huge eye that takes up most of this board, this eight-foot board on this. What is that? This stands for God the Father, the great I am. That he always was and gives him this impression from the beginning, and he always will be through the end. And he is God the Father. He is the great I am. God the Father represented in the logo. The other thing that you probably noticed first on this logo is the T at the end, and it's the cross, representing Jesus, of course, our Savior, our Lord, who come and sacrificed and broke his body and shed his blood for us that we could be redeemed, be restored. If you look at the letters in the middle, you might notice that all of them are touching, and there's a purpose for that. Because this represents the unity within the body of Christ, all the letters coming together through the power and direction of the Holy Spirit, the glue that holds us together. So in this logo, you have the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You have the body of Christ connected and in unity as Acts talked about, that they were all in unison and living of one accord and doing life together. And that's what we desire as a church, that we want to lock arms together. Because the Bible even says, Jesus says that a house divided against itself will fall. And we can't have division within the body. We must be unified for a common cause of Christ. Next thing that, that you might see in that logo is, if you look real carefully, the tip of the sea. It kind of looks like a, a fish hook. And that's on purpose. And that's for being fishers of men. That's for us to have a heart of evangelism, to reach the lost, even as we continue to make disciples, that we want to reach those who aren't in church. And to do that, guys, we have to get outside the church. You know, it seems like in society we've reversed the role of the church, that we think that we're just supposed to bring the lost to us. And that's why, we, that's why churches have fallen into this entertainment culture where we feel like we got to have a concert for them and entertain them and have lots of cool programs and great stuff. And there's nothing wrong with all that if the heart is right. But if we're just doing that to do that, to bring people in, we've missed the mission. Because the mission is to go out and reach them. The church was meant to edify the body and for us to, to, to grow in Christ and make disciples and then go out and reach the lost. We've got to get outside the four walls to do that. And we'll talk about how God has led us in this mission and vision to do just that with the land that he's provided. You'll also see on the cross 
it, it's very pointed, sharp edges, especially the one at the top. This is representation of the word of God because we know that Jesus is the word, right, from John chapter 1. And that we know the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's able to pierce the marrow of the heart. So we stand on the word of God, holy and unapologetically, because I know and I believe and you know and you should believe that God's word changes lives. It's represented in that logo as well. You might also notice the forward motion of the, of the logo, meaning that we're on the go, that we're going to make disciples. So you've got evangelism and disciples, that we're on the move. We're not stagnant. We're not just sitting around, that we're going to reach people with the gospel and with the truth of God's word. So there's your logo. It's got some meaning. It's not just a bunch of words on a sign. So what's the vision of our church? If you read our our vision statements, we exist to be a catalyst for revival through evangelism and discipleship, evidenced by lives changed, families mended and engaged in the local church, and the love, hope, and power of Christ being radiant in our homes, schools, and community. That's, what we, that's our vision. That's what we want to see is God doing an amazing work as we stand on his word where it's evidenced objectively by lives changed, by a difference. That's making an impact, Right? How do you know we've made an impact if things don't change? If lives don't change, it's, it's through the power of Christ that it can happen. So we stand firm with evangelism and discipleship. And I think of Acts 1.8, it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and to you will be my witnesses. Where? To Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Our Jerusalem is our community that we're big and we're involved in our community and we're doing constant outreach with, with egg hunts and you call it whatever else, not just to have an egg hunt and entertain people, but to share the gospel. We always share Christ at everything we do for our community and as we love on them. We have the, the mission of, of supporting Fellowship of Christian Athletes and we're actively involved in that with Rick Kennedy leading devotions down here with the football team every Wednesday and we, act, we are active in our community to reach, but then we also reach Judea and Samaria right? That we have a heart through FCA to, to, to reach out, to reach others. Um, David and Debbie O'Brien with their land in between in a uh, ministry where they go into the prisons and they take celebrate recovery in the gospel. And we support that as well. And we're looking to reach out and then to the uttermost parts of the earth that we have missionaries that we support and, and, and pour into as they look to reach the lost and, and unchurched and ungospelized people groups, one of them here today is, is Jack Dunn that we're starting to support as he trains people to plant churches in unchurched areas of the gospel. Of course, the vision and the mission of our church is, is to have a facility, not just to meet in, to have a home, but to be a tool to use to share the gospel, to share Christ. And inside of that heart and, and mission it is for us to, like we talked about, to be able to reach outside the four walls and to reach the lost and bring them in. And I don't know if you know this or not, but we could you know, build a big, fancy, beautiful building. There's plenty of those already in our community with churches. But for whatever reason, with all the great entertainment, with all the great praise and worship, with the, with the preaching, whatever, people are in this area and they still don't come to church. Why? Why? How do we reach them? So the, the vision that the Lord has given us is to have a, a sports complex that we can use for, to further the gospel 
that we can use to bring the community in where they're already going to practices every day and they're so busy with parents running up down the road, they can't go to life group, they can't go to youth group, whatever. And then we know travel ball, we're in this world where people leave and go out on weekends and, and get away from church and the, you know, the longer you're away from church, the less likely you are to come back. So Lord, how would we have a complex where we could bring people back in and share the gospel with them in an environment like that? So we looked for this land and, and prayed about, Lord, where would that be? And that's where, long story short, the Lord has led us to the 45 acres that we have and own over off of 811. And where that will, of course, yes, first and foremost, be where we develop our home, our, our, where, where we're anchored. And inside of this even multi-purpose center building, there'll be uh, ability to have basketball courts and play basketball, volleyball, whatever, maybe a, a baseball cage net to do some stuff indoors but an opportunity to have a home, but then to start reaching people with a tool for the gospel through that vehicle of athletics. And of course, as you know, and as you saw last week, we finally got our land permit. And if you know anything about our church, it's been a lot of obstacles overcome to get that. And that's an understatement. To the point where most people would have probably quit and given up and said, this is too hard. There's too much resistance. God, maybe you're just not in it if it's this hard. But then we remember at the, at the beginning, we said God never promised for it to be easy. He just promised to provide a way if he was in it. Church, we serve the God of the impossible. And he wants to do that in your life. What are you facing right now? What obstacles are you facing? What, what, what is keep, keeping you from coming and fully surrendering your heart and your life? You're all to Jesus. He wants to remove those obstacles. He wants to break those chains, tear down those walls, let you live life to the full. And then he wants to do the impossible, the, the, the something in your life that only he can get to glory for, where other people would see Christ and what he's doing through you. Don't you long to have a life and a faith like that? That's making an impact. That's a playmaker. That's a fourth quarter comeback. That's what God wants to do for you no matter what you're facing. That's being a Daniel in the face of a, of a world that wants to worship another God. And even to the, to the place of the lion's den. That's being a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's being a David that steps up in the face of a giant where a trained warriors had been dormant for 40 days. And he said, I'll fight him. How about you? What giant does God want to slay through you if you'll just make a stand in faith and give him your life and let him use you today? Be a disciple. Christ. This tool that God wants to use for evangelism is just that. It's a tool. But if you and I aren't faithful first in what God's calling us to do and who God's calling us to be, it will not have the impact that God wants it to have. It starts with us. Look at the person beside you and tell them it starts with you. Will you allow God and his word to guide you, lead you, overrule you when necessary? And watch him go to work in your life and those around you. Again, he never promised it to be easy. Circumstances will be hard and often impossible as we close here. But it often amounts to our perception First, our perception of God. Is he big? Is he all you see? 
Or is he like the story we talked about with the little boy and his dad and the airplane in the sky and the kid was confused because that's an airplane? That's so small, I can't even see it, I can't hear it. There's no way anything significant would be in that. And the father takes him to the airport and shows him the plane up close and be like, this is it. And he's like, daddy, this is all I can see, it's so big, it's all I can hear, I can't hear nothing else. That's how God wants to be to you in the midst of circumstances. Do you have an accurate view of God like that? Another part of our perception is our circumstances. Are your circumstances what determine your attitude? Do they determine how much fear or how much faith you have as to how things are going in your life? Do they determine how much heartbreak or how much hope you have when you just look at how things are going? I'm going to close with a story to bring perception where it should be. It's a story of, of two young men that come across a flyer in town one day of a reward for wolves to be brought in. $5,000 for every wolf they could bring in. And this one guy named Jed, he was an active hunter and he was used to the woods. And he looked at his friend, Billy, who was more of a city guy and never been in the woods. And he said, Billy, man, this is a chance for us to make some money. Let's go out here and let's see if we can get some wolves. Billy reluctantly agreed. So they gathered some gear that Jed had and they headed out into the forest in the deep in the forest. And as they got there to set up camp for the night, because tomorrow they would start their hunt, as they set up camp and started to go to sleep, and Jeb, of course, fell asleep really quick because he was in anticipation of the next day, Billy was scared, and he began to hear the wolves howl way outside the tent. And he stayed in fear all night because of hearing this eerie sound that scared him that he had never heard before. As morning began to dawn, Billy heard these wolves that were once at a distance were now outside the tent. He could hear their footsteps. He could hear their growls, and it was intimidating. And in fear, he just covered up his head and tried to pretend like it wasn't happening. In the meantime, his buddy Jed had woke up, and he heard some of this same noise outside and Jeb instead went to the, the tent door and unzipped it and looked out and he saw more than two dozen ferocious wolves salivating and growling and circling their tent and they were trapped. And in haste, Jed quickly turned back in. He said, Billy, wake up. Billy, wake up. Billy woke up. He said, I know I heard him. He said, we're, it's over, isn't it? We're dead. He said, no, we're rich. How do you view your circumstances that you're facing right now? We serve the God of the impossible. He wants to do a work in you as you come along him as a disciple, a follower of Christ, and live under his authority and the authority of his word and reach others before the final buzzer sounds. Because we're in the fourth quarter. God's looking for some playmakers. Let's bow our head and close our eyes. I wonder if there's anybody in here you might say, Brad, I want to make a commitment to Christ today. I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want to turn right now for the first time. I'm going to ask you if that's you to do business in your seat with the Lord. And we say every week that it, 
It's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. That's Romans 10, 9 and 10. So it's not just the words by themselves that save you. It's with the heart that you believe and are justified. But if that heart is right, then yes, that prayer, that doing business with God will, will save you right now. And you can be assured today forever that you are a disciple of Jesus. And then he wants to radically change you as you walk with him. Would you make that commitment today right now? If you're here and you say, Brad, I've walked with the Lord previously. I've made a previous commitment, and, but lately I've drifted. I've walked away. I've been living for myself, the things of this world, and I want to come running back to Christ today like the prodigal son. I'm going to ask you to pray the same prayer to do the same business with God right now and come running back to him and rededicate your life. To receive him for the first time or to rededicate your life boldly and unashamed right now to say, dear Lord, I admit to you that I've messed up, that I'm a sinner, and I'm in need of you, my Savior. Thank you for sacrificing your body and shedding your blood at Calvary that I could be forgiven of my sin, that I could be redeemed and restored and renewed. And thank you that three days later, just like you said you would, proving that you were God, that you rose in victory over all hell, death, and the grave. And Lord, I want to claim that same victory right now in my life, Lord, because I need it. And my commitment to you right here is that every step I take and every breath I make will be for your glory because I want to be an impact player on the field of life for you. Amen. If that's you and you just did business with God in this place, you committed your life to him for the first time or you rededicated to him, would you just boldly and unashamed raise your hand Said, say, Brad, I did business with God right here today and I'm not ashamed. Amen. Church, can we give Jesus a big round of applause? for who he is and his word and can we trust him and believe for everything he has for us not as, just as a church but everything he has for you individually for your family and, and your life that you're at will you trust in him go make an impact for Christ if you can thanks again for joining us today the Lord is truly doing an amazing work and we would love for you to be a part of it Check out the show notes for links to our website and social media pages. Or if you're ever in the Lynchburg or Forest, Virginia area, please come on by and join us in making an impact for Christ. Christ.